What's up, Energy fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but before we keep going, I want to make an announcement to tell everyone about my new sponsor, Inflow Control. They're a technology company dedicated to improving the efficiency of oil recovery while simultaneously reducing the industry's environmental impact using autonomous inflow control valve technology, also known as AICV. This breakthrough technology improves oil production by reducing unwanted gas and water, which enables mature oil fields to be more profitable by supporting oil productions from zones that would have typically been bypassed. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or simply check them out on LinkedIn or at inflowcontrol.no. Thanks. Perfect. We'll kick this thing off. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here in Zoom land with Mark Freeman, recently appointed CEO of Pro Directional. Mark, huge congrats. Welcome to the show. How's everything in your world today, man? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, today, everything is amazing. Everything is amazing. Very exciting start to 2023. Right. And, um, yeah. And looking forward to, to another fun and exciting year in, in oil and gas. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, we've got a we've got some good runway ahead of us. But uh, to you mentioned an exciting kickoff to 2023. Last night, my wife and I were were uh, getting ready for bed, and we just couldn't help but keep laughing about this Chinese balloon spy balloon oh thing that's been going on. <laughs> I mean, between the memes and the headlines and the denials and the accusations, I mean, what? <laughs> I don't. I mean, I- I, I have to admit, like the first time I saw something published on this, I really thought I, I literally thought it was a joke. I thought because <laughs> I'm like of all the technology that we have, it's really it's a balloon. I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. It's and again, there's so much like, oh, they're spying on this that, and the other. I am, you know, don't want to claim to be an expert in that field because I, you know, I just a lot of times read the headlines and try to at least keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. But you know, and, and not, you know, don't worry, folks, we're going to talk about oil and gas, but uh, <laughs> this is front and center of headlines right now. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about it. So apparently it's flown, it flew over Canada before coming into the US and, and I'm Canadian, so I can make fun of myself here, but we were, I, I guess, I don't think it was Trudeau, but it was someone out there uh, in the Canadian armed forces was like, we just didn't want to disrupt anyone and have missiles flying overhead. So we just decided to ignore it and let it, you know, essentially fly <laughs> down into the, into the U S I'm thinking, yeah, you don't want to, you know, ruin someone's day by having a missile fly overhead, but yet it's kind of a risk. Uh, wouldn't you rather, you know, address it accordingly? But again, I, I, I had to laugh. Right. Right. But uh, anyway, that good comical start there. Um, so Mark, for you as someone whose, whose company's success is tied to rig count and drilling yeah. activity. Are you tuning into everyone's earnings uh, seasons and reports coming out? And uh, I mean, I'm sure you're listening to what people are telling Wall Street. Is this an exciting time for you to kind of get a, a, a glimpse as to what's coming? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we, you know, obviously our our business is rig count, right? So, uh, yeah. so we're always watching that. We're always looking at earnings season. We're always looking at, okay, what What's driving potential decision making as we move forward? Obviously, commodity price, uh, which natural gas is is uh, you know has had a has had a you know not fun start to the year. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so definitely, you know, expecting some degree of rebalancing between natural gas and oil as we head through 2023. You know, from an activity perspective. But yeah, we're we're always, or I personally am always, and certainly you know my leadership team and board of directors is always looking at okay, what's going on with with our clients, uh, what's going to be driving their decision making when it comes to 2023 in terms of how they're going to develop their assets, yeah. and then subsequently, what's that going to mean for pro directional from a market perspective and rebalancing between different basins or just strategically, and also looking at a longer term view as well, right? Because yeah. you know um, even though we th- even though for sure, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, some degree of, of recount decline in, in natural gas basins as we as we progress throughout 2023. Also very bullish on the long term when it comes to natural gas. Um, you know, it's it's a great fuel source. 
Um, LNG capacity is going to be continuing to expand, you know, in future years, which means yeah. the the U.S. is going to become an even more important exporter of that uh, very important natural resource. And um, and so just knowing that, you know, even though that's going to impact the short term, also keeping an eye on what's going to happen in the long term and what that's going to mean for our business as well. Yeah, no, it's and, and again, like we were talking before, I'm I'm in the same space. My, uh, you know, we, we make money by cutting sacks at the hopper. Uh, and so with no with, you know, less less drilling activity means less revenue, which means, you know, we have to adapt accordingly. And uh, but, you know, as, from a macro perspective, it's and again, I'm no economist, but looking at the fundamentals and energy demand and, and you know, natural natural gas consumption and the estimated demand uh, moving forward uh, to your point, I think we're, we've got a good runway ahead of us. And, you know, while natural gas is, is taking a beating, we're in the $2 range now. It's, uh, again, like just the long-term expectations of consumption, the electric electrification of everything. I think yep. it, it, I think people can kind of hang, well, you know, you never want to take too much of a gamble, but you can hang your hat on knowing, you know, based like the Haynesville and, you know, Mar Marcellus is kind of tough with their takeaway capacities, but, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, we are now the global leader of, of LNG export with, like you said, I think there's three terminals being in construction to increase capacity. So, which is yeah. exciting, right? Regardless if you're tied to, to rig count or, um, you know, whether you're in the midstream side or gas, you know, compressing side, the reality is, is that really just helps increase our energy security, which, I don't know if you saw yesterday, uh -huh. Biden made points about kind of acknowledging the fact that uh, oil and gas are vital to to our nation's energy security. And so it was it was nice to, to hear. And, and again, regardless of which side of the fence you stand on, um, it's been an interesting roller coaster, you know, yeah. macroeconomics and commodity prices. And but uh, again, all in all, I mean, like I said, I'm excited, similar to you, where we're at now. I think the sort of flatline in activity is going to kind of help rebalance things, especially on the supply chain side and hopefully cost input mm -hmm. side. Uh, yes. but nonetheless, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're off to a good start, I, I think here. Um, but before we keep going in, in oil and gas stuff, Mark, something that really caught my attention, which is partially why I reached out, um, is, is I wanted to start by asking about a post that you had made a while back that didn't have to do with directional drilling, but more so it was when you were fundraising, uh, and, and raising money for mental health America of greater Houston for yeah. the Chevron marathon. And, and I'd like for you to speak on that and how you got into that and, and why that's something that's close to your heart. Yeah. Well, oh gosh, thanks for, thanks for asking about that. I, um, so I actually, a really good friend of mine had reached out to me. Um, her name is Liz Swiger and I got to know Liz, Liz over the last few years. And Liz had reached out to me and asked if I was interested in joining the board at mental health America of greater Houston and um, and she knew she knew mental health was something that I was passionate about. It's been something that has touched my life um, in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, either close personal relationships I have with people um, that have have had um, you know say mental health um, challenges or issues that they've had to address and and work through, and just going through the process of understanding that. And, under, and seeing that, you know, it's not straightforward, it's not easy. You know, if, if, we, if we as, um, you know, if, if we have a heart condition or, you know, we, we, we do something and we have an injury that, that harms our arm or our leg, we know exactly the path forward to get help and to, to have that addressed. But, uh, you, know, in this, you know, if you have something analogous to that on the mental health side, it's like, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I get support? And, and, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people feel shame in talking about that, which is just heartbreaking to me, quite frankly. Yes. Um, so for me, having the opportunity to join the, the, the board at Mental Health America of Greater Houston, understanding that a huge part of what they do is, um, you know, advocate on behalf of, of folks that are having mental health challenges or concerns or issues and just helping find, helping people find support as they go through those situations, number one, it's very personal to me um, because, because I've had very people very close to me have some of those challenges. Um, and then, and then honestly, it's, I just think it's, it's such a, it's something that has become much more elevated over the last couple of years, um, you know, where, uh, you know, people, whether they were, they were isolated during COVID or just the stress of going through COVID has, has escalated mental health. 
concerns and challenges. So yeah, uh, it was just, you know, I was very honored to be, to have Liz reach out to me and um, it's been very fantastic to get connected with that organization. And then I will tell you, raising money for them was such a fun experience because I, 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 you know, I'll be honest with you. I set my goal at like, uh, I want to say I started at like three or $4,000. And as I started publicizing my, you know, fundraising efforts, the outpouring of support was tremendous. Um, and I'm just so, so appreciative of, of the people that said, Hey, I want to get behind that. I want to support that. And I ended up raising almost $9,000, uh, which I was super, super excited about. Um, and I was on the leaderboard for a while. Okay. (laughs) But I, I think I ended up uh, dropping off on, on like the last couple of days. But I was at really? number ten. I was at number ten for the Houston uh, Chevron uh, Marathon for for uh, a week or two, and then I, I fell off. But anyway, there you go. That's, it was I mean, it was exciting. And it was fun. That's a huge accomplishment. Do you know anyone? I mean, do you know anyone personally who passed you up on that? I didn't know anybody that was above me. Uh, there was actually okay. a couple of other people from Mental Health America of Greater Houston that were just you know a little bit uh, a little bit below where I was, but. It was a fun experience, and and I will just say, if if you're not familiar with that organization, if someone listening to this is not familiar with that organization, Mental Health America of Greater Houston, okay. just really does tremendous things in in the in the the Houston area to support really you know advocacy and education to help people understand, you know, especially in education, how to identify and understand if if a child maybe is having mental health issues and how to, you know, what, what the process is for helping them find support. Yeah. They do a lot of, a lot of things to help veterans. Um, they're also getting a lot more, uh, uh, focus on what's called integrative healthcare, which is actually working with physical health healthcare providers Mm. to help integrate mental and physical health care as part of a process of, of, um, you know, treating a patient. So I'm just really impressed by the work that they do. And uh, if you haven't checked them out, please do and, and look to see how you can support that organization. I would love that. No, that, and thank you so much for speaking on that, Mark. I think it's extremely important. What I'll do is I'll put the link in the show notes for people to, if awesome. they're interested, um, that can easily just click the link and and dive into that. And, you know, you touched on, I mean, hey, I mean, we could create an episode just talking about mental health um, and even more specifically in oil and gas. But, um, you know, on that point, I, I had the pleasure of uh, chatting with Chuck Yates over at Digital Wildcatters there a couple of weeks ago. We actually did a podcast and, and we talked about mental health in oil and gas and, and how the cyclical nature of our business and 24-7 operations can really take a toll on people. And, you know, for someone like myself, who essentially, I say, I always say I grew up on a drilling rig, which I kind of did at 18, I finally grew up and, you know, put myself on a rig and, and really, you know, it, it what it, at, at, it was interesting because, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, I'd be rough and tough and you know, played football and basketball. And so, you know, it's just like the toughest will survive and, and you know, going working on a drilling rig, you know, the minute you say either I'm thirsty, hungry, tired, miss home, uh, you know, or anything that was kind of pressing mentally, you know, it's, you just, at the time you didn't do that. It was, you know, you wore your, 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 your toughness as a badge of honor and no one talked about it. And, and it was tough. I mean, for a long time trying to, there were maybe two or three hands on the rig that you could kind of relate to and behind closed doors, like, man, like kind of depressed, man, like this sucks being out here, you know, and, and, but no one would ever admit it, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of a group setting on the rig floor or anything. Um, why do you think that is? And do you see it getting better? And, and by that, I mean, sort of the mental, uh, health within oil and gas specific to drilling. Cause we, we're kind of our own breed, yeah. right? Yeah. How would you yeah. describe that now? And, and what are people doing or even companies doing to support that? type of issue you know that that is really cool to bring up and i do you know i i often think about um my team members that are out 24 7 365 uh, away from their families on holidays yeah um you know it's tough it's a tough role it's a tough lifestyle at times right i mean um and I think, I think for a lot of folks, it's, it's what they know, it's what they do. It's, um, and they're exceptional at, at being in those environments, but there's times where that is a very challenging lifestyle. And 
I would say one of the things that we, that I always try to do, um, you know, probably pretty much every holiday, and I know maybe this is a small gesture, but I almost always post something on social media just to, to thank our field team. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I am incredibly appreciative of them being away from home. Um, away from, I mean, they're, they're providing for me and my family. Right. And not yeah. only that they're providing a vital resource to our society by doing that. Right. I mean, energy is, is so important. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the, the more that we can all show appreciation for that and maybe recognize the sacrifice, I think that certainly helps. Uh, but I also think, and I love the fact that you said uh, you and Chuck had a, had a podcast just almost dedicated to, to mental health. I think the more that we talk about it, yeah. you know, like the fact that you and I are talking about this now, the fact that, um, you know, that'll be out there, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a public format. Um, and really, that's why I'm trying to post a little bit more frequently on social media about about mental health is there's no there's no reason to there's no reason to feel ashamed. There's no reason right. to. In fact, the more you talk about it with somebody, the better you're going to feel because you you start to understand, hey, they feel this way, too. And I'm not alone. Yeah. And, um, and, and honestly, like if it if it is something that requires, uh, you know, more more help and support than just talking to someone about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting it, getting it out there in the open and maybe talking with someone then also helps lead you down the path of, okay, I need to take that next step and maybe seek some professional help as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, I, I think long story short, the way I think we start to, to, um, you know, really help people in those scenarios is number one, recognizing the sacrifice that they make and showing appreciation for it. And then number two, just, you know, continuing to openly and publicly talk about, mental health and the need for support so that people understand like, Hey, there's other people out there that feel this way. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for me to feel, uh, you know, embarrassed or ashamed of, um, needing some support. Yeah, no, that's that you make some, some good points. And, and one thing that, that I've tried to do throughout my career is because, you know, after being on a rig and, and working in the field, uh, as a rig hand and, and on the service side, you know, it was rare to have someone from the office who does get to spend time with their families on Christmas Eve. Yeah. They might be on the phone and they have to take a call from someone chewing them out, but they're at home with their family. Right. (laughs) So uh, I, I, you know, I make a point of of essentially trying to really trying to, to build relationships with those regardless if they're in the field or not, but give them an opportunity to express how they're doing. You know, it's one thing to call a mud engineer or directional driller and, and quiz them up and down as to why they, you know, slid for X amount of feet, this and that, but, but when they're not dialed right into, to that critical path of operations at the time, you know, ask them how their days off or how's the family, how are you feeling, man? Like everything good? Like, is there anything, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be a babysitter and, and, you know what I mean? Like there's a balance, right. But I think it's just showing you care about those folks. And, and again, it could be folks in the office too, right. Is I think it's us as leaders, we need to challenge ourselves to really, build those meaningful relationships and make them less transactional with our employees and really engage and and make them feel comfortable to have a voice. So, you know, open door policy, someone comes in, man, you got five minutes, like, you know, things at home are crazy. I know my work's kind of suffering. And I just wanted to express that to you because I feel like I'm not, you know, meeting your expectations. Like people should be okay with coming to people like that. And again, easier said than done. But I think if we create an environment where it's like, Hey, you need to work hard and you need to be tough and you need to overcome challenges, but you're also, you're, it's cool to come to me if you got issues, like we're in this, we're in this together kind of thing. So again, not to, not to, not to beat that down any further, but, uh, but I just think again, like you said, the conversations creating awareness around it. Um, and then, you know, making sure that people within our organizations, people within pro directional feel comfortable enough that they're not going to get reprimanded or verbally undressed in front of a group. If all of a sudden someone's just not feeling well, you know, and, and so it sounds like you're, you're on that as well. Um, and, and so another uh, a topic we talked about before we kicked off was you were talking about, uh, I think it's CASA. Is that correct? Do you mind speaking about on that as well a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm also on the board of directors for CASA of Montgomery County. And so CASA is Court Appointed Special Advocate. And so um, for children going through the foster care system, what happens is the court will appoint a, these are volunteer advocates that basically support that child 
um, as they go through the, the foster care process and, and, um, um, and just sort of navigate, you know, all the things that they need to navigate. Um, and it's just, I think it's a great organization. Um, they're providing a vital service for children. Uh, and, and there are CASAs across the U.S. It's a, it's a national organization. I'm actually part of the Montgomery County uh, CASA organization. Mm. But there's CASAs all over the U.S. So regardless of where you are, where you're listening to this, um, you can also find out more about that organization and the work that they do in supporting, you know, children in your area. And I'll tell you, um, you know, it's not it's, it's, it's certainly providing support for children, but you also talk about mental health, right? Yeah. I mean, these children are undergoing a lot of trauma. Um, I mean, they're being separated from their parents their, or parents or guardian or whoever that may be. Um, I, you know, for me, I couldn't even imagine what that might feel like. And so, you know, here they're, they're being introduced into a, a new surrounding uh, environment where they don't they don't know anybody. And the process is confusing working through the court system. And so now they've got somebody that's been assigned to them that is in many cases, the only constant that they have, they may move from foster home to foster home to foster home. Mm -hmm. And that advocate is going to stay with them that entire time. Right. So it's, it's sort of the one constant in their life in, in many cases, the one constant in their lives throughout the entire process. And someone that's just there to, to support them, to help them to advocate for their best interests, um, to see if they have family that they can reunite, reunite them with. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so again, you think about that not only in, in the moment of helping that child, but then also helping reduce the trauma that that child experiences throughout that process and providing some degree of certainty for them, at least, um, that ultimately will help with the long-term mental health of that, of that child as well. So, um, it's a great organization doing amazing work. Um, and I've just been really, really, um, touched and inspired by the, the stories that I've seen um, and the dedication of the advocates that really come in to, to volunteer and support these children. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's really, really amazing. Yeah. No, again, I, I think it's, a, it's awesome that like someone like yourself that, I mean, arguably you could probably work 24 seven focusing only on pro direction, <laughs> but the fact that you, you, you know, you, you, you use your time to, to give back and to commit to organizations like this, I think they speak volumes. Right. And I think as a leader of an organization, I'm sure your employees look at that as, as inspiring. And, and I think it just sets a good precedence as to sort of the values and, and sort of core morals that you have within within yourself that I'm sure, you know, through osmosis, uh, move into to other folks within your company. And so that's really cool. Um, I want to zoom in a little bit, obviously talk about directional drilling. It's a fascinating yeah. world, lots of cool technology that's been, that. you know, coming, uh, coming into, into our world, uh, you know, kind of on a macro level and not specific to pro directional, but what are you most excited about this year? Uh, and as we move forward with regards to like, whether it be rig automation, directional drilling technology, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. do you see any big movements in the needle with regards to drilling operations right now that we're, that you, that we're looking forward to seeing? Oh my gosh. It's hard to know where to start on that, Justin. Like I could, I <laughs> yeah. could, I could literally talk for two hours about all the things that I'm excited about. Well, let's um, talk then just specific to directional. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot there too. Yeah, there is. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. I could talk forever, but uh, I would say yeah. that the thing that I um, that I think has really moved the needle for us over many things, right? But one thing that I, I'll, I'll kind of zoom in on a little bit is is really what you touched on earlier, like remote operations and automation, and just um, as we have, you know, we we really started our remote operations center probably a little over two years ago. Okay. Um, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah. More, longer than that, probably about three years ago. And time flies when you're having fun, right? Um, <laughs> I know. About three yeah. years ago. Right. And, and really, um, just the amount of momentum that has built over the course of that three years is tremendous to the point to where now, um, you know, in 2023, we're going to do probably 17,000, 18,000 towers remote. Wow. Right. I mean, just think about that. 17,000, 18,000, between 17 and 18,000 towers remote. So, so when you say that, Mark, and I don't mean to cut you off, but for those who yeah. maybe aren't familiar with the drilling space and without going into the weeds, 
how would you describe that to someone who may understand, well, I know you drill for oil and gas and I know there's this thing called a rig and there you, you need to have a special service like you guys to be able to point and shoot. But, but when you say remote and, and, you know, the towers, can you kind of elaborate just a little bit? Yeah. So a tower is essentially like a shift, right? So, um, for each, for each day, you typically have a day tower and a night tower. Um, so you've got two guys on location, one guy covering days, one guy covering nights. And so essentially when I say we're covering a tower remote, instead of having that person on the rig, we actually have a remote operations center at our headquarters here in Conroe, where we've located um, employees um, that are instead of providing those services physically on the rig, they're actually providing that service from our remote operations center here in Conroe. Um, and typically um, they're able to cover like multiple rigs instead of, you know, a one-to-one ratio of what you might have on, on the rig side itself. Right. And, and there's a, you know, without getting, like you said, totally in the weeds, there's a whole bunch of different configurations that we provide in terms of how we, how we supply remote operations services. But when I say we're covering 17,000 to 18,000 towers remote, that's essentially having 17,000 to 18,000 of those shifts being covered in our remote operations center instead of a, a person physically on location, which, you know, I think in whenever I initially bring up remote operations, the first thing that people say is like, oh, wow, that's, that must be saving a lot of money. And I'm always like, yeah, it is, but not in the ways that you think, right? Okay. Because um, I think the thing that everyone thinks is, okay, well, you remove a person from location, you're lowering the cost of delivering that service which to some degree is true. But the other thing is by bringing all, you know, now we have all these people in our remote operations center and they collaborate, right? So if, if yeah. there's a troubleshooting problem on location, you know, instead of just that person being isolated and by themselves until they pick up the phone and call somebody, you know, they've got, they've got several people in the room with them to say, hey, look, I'm having this problem. Have you seen this before? And they start collaborating on troubleshooting problems. On yeah. top of that, our coordinators offices are just outside the remote ops center. So, okay, I need, I need help from someone, you know, at a higher level to, to, to support me. I'm going to call in my coordinator. Our technical services director is just down the hall from them. And then our engineers are also just down the hall. Right. So yeah. it's like the resources at their fingertips are tremendous and mm-hmm. the amount, you know, being able to troubleshoot remote now with the type of technology that we have and the communication um, continuity that we're able to establish, it's just, it's exceptional, right? So, Hmm. so what we've seen, and in fact, literally just had a KPI review with a client out in Midland. Okay. And we had just switched from, um, we had, we were covering, it was, it was MWD that we were covering um, one, person on location and then we were covering with our remote center uh, remote ops center on the night tower or the day tower kind of alternating and we just switched to actually having rovers where we've just got a couple of guys out in the field covering a multitude of rigs and then we're covering all the towers in our remote ops center and the client said the client literally said um operations have never run smoother right wow and you know, in an environment where you would say, okay, well, gosh, your quality of service is going to decline when you do that. It, it's not, it, it's actually the opposite because of, uh, you know, the, the consistency, consistency that we can provide yeah. the level of training that we can provide the experience that the folks in our remote operations center have. Um, so it's really helped us deliver, you know, a higher level of service quality. Um, even though, even though it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive. Sure. No, that, I mean, when you brought it up and you were talking about the collaborative aspect, I never really considered that. And in, in my space, uh, you know, we're, we're not quite there with regards to having remote ops, you know, in, in the fluid space, but the, you know, whenever you are around a, gr- a group of people that have experience, yeah, the, the amount of sort of the idea bouncing the collaboration and, and you, the, exactly. the amount you can, you can troubleshoot the, the rate at which you can, address problems and resolve them are, are probably exponentially higher. And that's, you know, one thing that I think we do, I want to say poorly, but as an industry, we've, we've kind of challenged ourselves with how we share information. And so whenever you can get folks together, sharing information and, and working together, I think that that adds another element uh, to, to the, to the efficiency and just overall, you know, productiveness of, of an operation. 
Um, and, and, you know, cause I was going to talk about like, I'm sure there's buckets of value that you can articulate towards, like you said, like the economics, I mean, hopefully it drives down economics and, you know, there's that, but then there's the point you make. And then let's be honest, like the big one too is, uh, HS and E, right. I mean, if you're having less folks on the road, less, you know, fuel lowering, hopefully the, the risk that you're putting, uh, people at, like all of it tied together is, is kind of a no brainer. And, you know, and, and although this is something that it's like, oh, this makes total sense, but I mean, are people right now, so this is on the operator side, very much willing to work with just call it the directional drilling world to do remote ops or are there still some that kind of put up a bit of a hurdle to say, yeah, it sounds great and it's cool, but no, we're not doing it. I mean, do you still experience that? I think what we see, it's a, it's a little bit of a mix, Justin, you're, you're spot on, right? There, there's some folks that, you know, have maybe experienced it a little bit themselves already and have seen that, yeah, okay, this is, this technology works. It can work if it's implemented appropriately. Tell me how you're doing right mm -hmm. and then once we explain it they're like okay yeah let's do this uh and then there's others that are you know that say hey look you know i don't know right I don't, i'm just not sure about it and um you know so we have to we have to help them understand the track record that we've established that hey we're doing this we're doing this on you know you know 70 towers every day right now right you know 60 yeah. 70 towers every day right now so it's not it's not something that we're not experienced at and then honestly, a lot of times <clears throat> we say, hey, come look at our remote ops center. Come see how we're running things. Mm. And they'll come to Conroe, they'll see the facility and they'll say, okay, wow, this is, this is impressive, right? This is something that, you know, in, in, in your mind, it feels like a risk until you understand how it's performed. Yeah. And then you see it and you say, okay, I can see how you guys have de-risked this. And I see that you have the right processes, protocols and technologies in place to really uh, appropriately manage this and and not and actually add value to my operations rather than just try and take cost out right because yeah. um, it, it is exactly like you said right i mean at the end of the day yes it does lower the day rate a little bit okay that that's cool and that and there's some savings there but the the big the big uh kickers are really i mean you mentioned hsc risk so you know less, less exposure for for people on location but then the huge one is we actually minimize, further minimize potential non-productive time, which at mm. the end of the day, that's the real benefit. That's the real value. And that's the real ultimately, um, you know, savings to the client. So that, that's yeah. what we've, that we, that's what we've truly focused on is when we're implementing technologies, it really has to be about either reducing the number of, of uh, you know, increasing performance, increasing drilling performance, lowering non-productive non time, mm -hmm. or reducing HSE risk. You know, those, those are the things that we, and then obviously continuing to 100% place that well bore in the right, in the right spot, of course. Yeah. Um, but those are the things that we think about from a technology perspective is everything that we do is focused on one of those three things, you know, increasing yeah. drilling performance, lowering non-productive or reducing non-productive time or reducing HSC risk or all of those things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's interesting. And, and again, I, you know, I, I thought right away is, you know, increasing drilling performance, perhaps better accuracy, but at the end of the day too, is, is NP, you know, non-productive time NPT, as we say here in the drilling world, I mean, especially now with, you know, with day rates tickling 40 and some even a little yeah. bit above, uh, yes. you know, time is money and it always has been, but now, and, and it's crazy because when you get in, 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 you know, unconventionals has, has made a lot of drilling programs very much manufacture mode where, you know, I remember it kind of a cool story is, you know, I remember kicking a, a campaign off with, with a client, they brought their first rig out and, um, you know, it was like, well, let's see how we can go from a 24 hour round trip to, you know, cutting that in half. And that was like, if we could do that, that was amazing. Right. And so years progress, we get, you know, we reach those targets among many other ones. Well then, you know, they add more rigs to the fleet. And so you're constantly getting better. And at the end of the campaign, before they went bankrupt, uh, which a lot of people <laughs> did, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to name any names, but you, there's yeah. a few out there. Uh, um, anyway, so we got to a point where, 
you know, instead of shave, trying to shave hours, we were like, they were literally trying to reduce cycle times to shave 10, 15 minutes. Like that's how fine tuned all this stuff got. And it was just cool to, to experience that. And, and to your point, it's like, anytime you can keep, you know, the, the bit on bottom and, and drilling um, that that's a huge win. And so like with, with that being said, Mark, would you say, so if, if we kind of look at say the accuracy in terms of when you're directional drilling, you've got a plan, you've got to get to it. And you essentially have this bullseye that you're trying to get to for lack of better terms. Do you think we're at a point now where we've maxed out the level of accuracy that, that we have, or, or are there still things happening on the technology side to even be more accurate or are we shifting more to like, how can we be more automated and stuff like that? Like, can you, can you yeah. describe that a bit? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's an interesting topic to talk about. I, I would say, I mean, just, and I'll start it off by saying there's probably less, we're, we're probably putting less emphasis on, I, I, I the well placement is already very accurate. Right. Now that said, you know, spacing in some cases is becoming tighter and tighter and we are infill drilling in a lot of these plays. Right. So, um, so if you look at, the if you look at anti-collision right like there's there's definitely a lot more opportunities for anti-collision concerns yeah so definitely i think we put a lot of focus on making sure that 100 of the time we are on top of well-war placement um and you know implementing all the best technologies all the right protocols um and and using it when appropriate third parties to you know refine those refine accuracy even even further um so we're definitely putting a lot of emphasis there um but i do think you know when it comes to and like you said earlier it's like it, it you know drilling is a continuous optimization process right and you know you initially start these campaigns and say okay we're trying to shave out you know half a day or a day and then over time it's like okay well how can we shave off another 20 minutes 30 minutes and so you start thinking about, okay, how can we get surveys up faster? How can we get, um, you know, how can we get our mean time between failure from 4,500 hours to 4,750 hours, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, over time, you're just trying to, it, it's, it's just that continuous optimization process. Um, and the cool thing about directional drilling is like, it's a system of systems, right? So if yeah. you think about a BHA, you know, obviously you've got a bit, you've got a motor, but even in a motor, right? A motor is a lower end, which a lower end is made up of, you know, dozens of different components. And then you've got a power section, which is a multitude of different components. And then you've got an MWD string, which is, you know, hun literally hundreds of components, which everybody thinks of MWD as one thing, right? So it's, it's literally a system of systems. And if you look at that stack of reliability, you know, all these different systems stack up from a reli reliability perspective, yeah. And so it's really what we look at is diving into each one of those subsystems and saying, okay, how do we take this component from, you know, a life of a thousand hours to a life of 1200 hours or a life of 1500 hours? And how do we, how do we take this component that is susceptible to shock and vibration and really, you know, further ruggedize it so that it is less susceptible to shock and vibration? Oh, and while we're on the topic of shock and vibration, how do we minimize shock and vibration so that it's less of an issue for the, <laughs> yeah. for the BHA, right? So, yeah. um, so when our engineers are thinking through those problems and when our engineers and operations teams are thinking through those problems, that's how we're really breaking it down and saying, okay, you know, what's the next component that we try to, to optimize even further um, so we, we can just, you know, enhance the, the service delivery that we have. Right. No, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's always, a, a, I always had an appreciation for, for the directional world. It just always seems like there's new motors or new MWD or just, it's just always something kind of new coming down uh, into, into, into the, the drilling operation. And, you know, the, the sandbox that I play in is it's, it's been very much the same for a long time. And so um, while we have some, you know, some cool technology that we deploy and, and it's regular, but it, a lot of times it doesn't quite, unless it's like, a system that you know allows a, a operator to save a casing string it's not very often talked about but um how would you so i have a bit of a two-part question here kind of on top of what we've been talking about is how would you describe the future of directional drilling and, and how is pro directional positioning 
themselves and differentiating themselves in order to capture and, and be part of the, the future of directional drilling. Yeah, that's great. And I, I do think, um, you know, the, the future of directional drilling will be continuing to use more automation, um, lowering the, let's call it personnel in- intensity of delivering that service. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not so much for the, for the purpose of reducing people, but it's more for the purpose of, you know, automating processes so that they're repeatable, they're consistent, they're accurate. Yeah. Um, reducing manual inputs and, um, and just using technologies that continue to make deploying tools and assets and, you know, putting them in the well, a more repeatable process that requires less manual intervention on location. Mm-hmm. So what I would say, how we're, how we are positioning and how we've, how we've tried to position ourselves over the last several years is just, we are continuing to invest in technologies that automate processes that, um, you know, make the deployment of assets uh, and the, and the ability to pick up those tools in the field easier okay. and make remote troubleshooting easier um, make the setup of, of systems on location to um, to gather information require less people so it's 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 all about just making making it easier right yeah. like like right. hit the easy button and you've got directional drilling right so yeah that that's really what um, what I would say we're focused on you know in terms of in terms of the future of directional drilling and and really just getting it to the point where over time, you know, it, it, it can be a process that just just doesn't require as many people to be on location full time to deliver that service. And and maybe that means they're in a different location delivering right. that service, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, so that's, that's no, that's a great answer. And I I mean I think now is, is a better time than ever to to continue to invest heavily into technologies because you know, a lot of times, especially us in oil and gas, we romanticize on what's gotten us to where we're at without realizing we have to evolve, we have to change, we have to adopt uh, to, to just essentially keep up. And it's a comp- competitive marketplace, right? I know directional drilling is extremely competitive. And uh, unless you're constantly pushing forward and thriving to overcome the status quo, you're going to, you know, market share is going to dictate, uh, or, you know, that's going to dictate market share. And, you know, it's, and even in a point where it's going to require, I mean, the goal for a lot of operators is okay, less rigs, same amount of footage or more. And so naturally, you know, I don't know if we're going to get back to a thousand rigs in the U S anytime soon. I doubt it. I don't think the capacity is there. I don't think the manpower is there. Um, and, and so as the rig count shrinks, how are people stepping outside the box and whether that's through some interesting JV work, interesting technology that maybe hasn't been considered, these things are going to have to continuously be looked at and evaluated and hopefully they make business sense (laughs) because if not, then, you know, there's, there can be some, some challenges on that front. Um, but no, it's, it's exciting to see where you guys are at. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of, you know, I've had my arms or at arm's length to, to folks, uh, you know, at pro directional. And so they're always good group of people. Uh, but I want to, before we close out and and we're getting close to the hour here already, but I want to just take a quick, a minute to talk a little bit about your perspective on, um, not necessarily, you know, drilling, but just the importance of fossil fuels, because I would imagine just speaking with you and kind of getting to know you, I would say you're an energy advocate. I I would sense that you're not out there, um, you know, doing anti-renewable campaigns or anything, but obviously the success is determined by rate count. But at the end of the day, I'd like you to speak just like, how would you articulate the importance of fossil fuels to those who may be just skeptical and, and who maybe sort of buy into the narrative that perhaps media has been pushing heavily as of late? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just start off by saying like, I'm so proud to be a part of this industry. I think what we do is vital. It's literally, it, you know, uh, vital is like not even strong enough of a word, right? It's like, it's, it's required, sure. um, you know, for, and if, if you look at, uh, if you look at the things that we need as humans, right? Like, <laughs> like just let's get basic here, right? Like we yeah. need, we need, we need water, we need food, 
you know, just to survive. And then, you know, the thing that establishes quality life is really energy. And um, we, as Americans, honestly, are just, uh, and North Americans, if you're Canadian, uh, (laughs) are are just so fortunate to really be in, um, in a place where energy is cheap, it's affordable, it's abundant, it's at our fingertips. Um, there's many parts of the world where that's not the case, right? I mean, if you go to parts of Africa, the, the number one source for fuel is dumb, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 kind of shocking, right? That that's you know the the, the how comfortable we are with things is is just um, you know we're very blessed and fortunate. So um, so for me, I just feel like I I think that the that what we do as an industry is is just so important for the world. Um, I think continuing to provide um, cheap and affordable energy, or I guess uh, cheap and abundant energy, mm-hmm. is 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 huge. And I also think, and, and something that I think is just so under under uh, represented and and maybe even not really well understood, is how big of a a benefit natural gas has been to the world, right? If, if you look at, if you look at um, carbon emissions in the U.S. over the course of the last two decades, yeah. they have continued to, to decline because of the adoption of natural gas as a fuel source, right? I mean, you talked about the elect- electrification of, um, uh, of the world and certainly of the U.S. Um, and, the, and the continued move towards electricity as a, as a, as a growing uh, source of energy. Well, I mean, natural gas provides the the fuel that product that produces a lot of that uh, electricity, and its displacement of coal has resulted in honestly the U.S. reducing its its carbon emissions. Right. Right. So I think, I think, and and the U.S. is such a natural gas powerhouse, right? Um, and we we kind of hit on it earlier in the in the segment here, but that's as as LNG terminals come online and as as natural gas becomes more of a global com commodity it was it was you know 20 years ago a 100 regional yeah. commodity where you know it was trapped because you couldn't move natural gas to different markets um, as lng terminals come online that, that that shifts and the u.s can become even even bigger player in the global supplier of of natural gas mm-hmm. but um but anyway long story short i and i look i don't i'm not against uh solar or wind or anything else um i think anything i think you know, anything that makes sense overall should be supported. Yeah. Um, and as, as, uh, you know, as different forms of energy make sense from an economic and from a, um, you know, from a, a reliability perspective, I think that should absolutely, they should all be supported because every, you know, there are everything that we have is a finite resource. So of course I'm, I'm uh, completely, not uh not saying go one way or the other but i i do think we as an industry uh even though sometimes we get a bad rap i think we've done um so many things that are just amazing to supply you know energy to the world and i think the future that we have especially uh you know continuing to to produce oil but also shifting towards you know providing more and more natural gas over time um, can be also a massive environmental benefit over time. So it's uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that future for our industry, and and also I'm hoping that the events over the last you know year and and moving forward also continue to shine a, a little bit of a brighter light on the good things that we do uh, right. as an industry. But I think we also have to all advocate as well um, yeah. and make sure it's understood the things that we are doing to to provide for you know, society. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, again, it's, that's a very healthy approach. And and the more people that I talk to in many different verticals within energy really have a very similar ideology of, of where we're at, where we need to be and what it's going to take to get there. I think the, the extremes on either sides are the ones that typically, you know, uh, kind of put people in buckets because everyone wants to belong to a camp it's you're either for or against us you know and which is just you know we already have a huge problem with divisiveness here in the u.s it's like why do we have to bring energy into it too Um, which unfortunately it always goes to sort of down that path but to your point i think it's just it's about you know it's educating it's 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 informing people and providing enough information in a kind non uh you know combative way to just 
give people the information that can then help make that they can then help themselves make better decisions. Um, whether that's policy, whether that's legislation, whether that's voting, whether that's even, you know, just energy efficiency in your home. Uh, there's a lot of like where the amount of energy that we waste and, and there's a bunch of graphs and data out there. Um, but you know, because we were built on the backbone of cheap energy, we take it for granted. Like you said, there's places all over the world that would probably, you know, there's families that would give up their firstborn child to live a day in the U S and have an abundant of like, there's some places like talk about leaving your cell phone plugged in all night. They'd be like, Oh my goodness. Like you can do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but to us, we just plug this in, plug that in, leave this on. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, and we take it for granted. Um, but, but at the end of the days, we're so fortunate and it's, and it, and it's, you know, again, us as in the U S or North America or any, you know, thriving economy, it's how can we help others who don't have access to, to the same uh, privileges we have. And, you know, and you talk on, you, we talked on, you know, the, the economy. And if you look at a lot of the richest nations uh, you know, GDP is directly tied to energy consumption and the access to reliable, affordable, and, you know, abundant amount of it. And so it's like, where does that come from? A lot of it's built on the backbone of, of fossil fuels everything else is coming to the table, but it's going to take time. And I think that's the component that people are realizing is it's, it's not this on off switch. Um, right. Cause it is truly a, a transition into like, we're always transitioning, but uh, again, I, I appreciate that answer and it's, it's a good conversation. And it's one that I hope people on both sides of the fence can finally come together, whether it's in office or it's on the street at a gas station, you know, like it's just the more we yeah. talk about it, I think the more at least we're, we're making progress, um, which is super cool. And so with that said, Mark, I really appreciate it. I want to respect your time. If people are interested to get to know more about either you or ProDirectional, what's the what's the sort of the best way for people to reach out and then learn? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, obviously, check out our website, ProDirectional.com. Uh, we're also on social media, and I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. So, which is awesome. I commend you for that, big time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a great platform. I love it. Um, Sweet. So yeah, reach out to me, reach out to uh, any of the members of the pro-directional team, uh, either through social media or, you know, through our website. And uh, we love to, we love to connect. So I right. definitely appreciate you having me on, Justin, and, and really enjoyed the discussion today. Thanks so much. Likewise. Well, everyone, I appreciate you tuning in. And before we log off, I'd like to quickly close out by sharing some information about a new partnership that we've landed with oil patch. It's your daily energy news fix in five minutes or less. Think hustle or morning brew for energy. So please do them a favor and subscribe using the link in the show notes or go to theoilpatch.co. Everyone again, thanks for listening. And always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.